This is Car Expert. Then you've got the Chinese coming in at the very bottom. Someone's going to get squeezed out there. And I think there's just going to be a point there where those more established nameplates are really going to struggle. Rather than feeling like a big version of a small SUV, it almost feels like a slightly shrunken Tucson inside, which is the approach that Kia's also taken with the Seltos and one that's really won favour with lots of buyers. Welcome to this week's podcast. Hello, William Stopford. Hi, Mandy. Hello, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. Scully, a little birdie told me that you're off to the US very shortly and uh, you're going to witness NASCAR for the first time. This is exciting. Yeah, I'm off to the States, provided my passport comes back with a visa in it in the right amount of time, which it hopefully will, um, in a couple of weeks to go and drive the new Mustang Dark Horse. But we're also going to a NASCAR race. And it's one of those motorsports that I've always been intrigued by because Obviously, it's just really global and really loud and really cool, but I've never had the opportunity to see live. So I've done Formula One, I've done supercars, and I've actually been to the Bathurst 12-hour and seen GT racing before, but I'm really, really keen to see, for one, the NASCARs, but also just how the crowd behaves in general, given we're going to be down south. It would have to be like the the Australian version of V8 supercar fans, surely. The mixture of, of bogans and enthusiasts and <laughs> Yeah, look, I think that plus even more. The history of NASCAR yeah. is really interesting. It's kind of tied into people running moonshine around the south. Um, and because of that, it is still like a very traditional sort of pastime down there. So you mentioned the bogans thing. I think there might be a few rednecks there. Um, but I'm looking forward to experiencing the full sort of southern gamut of things that are there to do. I don't think you can actually find another motorsport that mm, is louder than NASCAR. Sure, I know you've got like a lot of European stuff, you know, V12s and all that, but these things would be epic. Yeah, they're still big, thirsty, noisy V8s. And yeah. in the world where Formula One kind of sounds like they're vacuum cleaners blowing through a silencer, um, it's going to be a refreshing change. And I think also like one of the things you notice when you listen to the V8 supercars or even something like a Carrera Cup race is because they're all making kind of the same noise and because they're doing it all together, just the amount of energy in the whole air when it happens um, is pretty cool. So, yeah, the first time they all go flying past after the formation lap, I, I imagine I'm going to be like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> Have you ever been to Le Mans 24-hour? No, I haven't. Um, yeah, it's very high on the list. That and the Nürburgring 24-hour, which apparently is a pretty incredible event, uh, are both very high on the list. Um, Will, I noticed you've been very quiet throughout this conversation. It's it, uh, Look, uh, I'm sure if I went to it, I might enjoy myself. But for those who, who don't know, I really have no interest in motorsport. I know that sounds crazy for an enthusiast. I understand, you know, the the, um, the technological innovations that sometimes come from motorsport, the filter down to cars, and I should be excited. I just never gotten into it, never really been much into sport either. So I just, my eyes kind of glaze over. Uh, but even, I imagine our listeners' eyes are not glazing over because they like motorsport. You're, you're, you're a bit of an American car fan. I'm surprised you don't have any, like a small amount of interest in NASCAR. No, no. I, yeah. <laughs> I just, it just, just washes over me. There is more than one America within America, and the America Will loves and is a part of is not the America that NASCAR is a part of. <laughs> Speaking of, though, Scott, where, where actually are you going while you're on this trip? Yeah, good question, Will. Um, we are going to Virginia and Charlotte in 
South Carolina. I had to think hard about that because the Carolinas confuse me. Why not give them different names? I don't know. Uh, likewise, the Dakotas. But yeah, uh, we're doing a drive of the Mustang on track in Charlotte. Um, I think the NASCAR event also is in Charlotte. And then we're road tripping from there, potentially in Mustangs, potentially in something else. I'm not quite sure at this stage. Um, and getting the opportunity. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, I'm going to be the first person ever to crash a NASCAR off the interstate. Um <laughs> And, yeah, I'm not sure from there what exactly we're driving. But I also – I love the States just in general. Um, you know, it's just, a, it's just a fun place to spend time. So it's going to be really good. And the new Mustang, Will, I know you experienced it in person but static last year, uh, has a lot of potential, I think, to build on the success of the last one. So that's also going to be cool. All right. We'll cover off this week's biggest car news and we'll start off with you, Scully. We've got uh, the 2024 Mercedes-Benz CLE Coupe and Convertible Pictures. We finally do. Mercedes has been talking about this car kind of, but not really for a little while. Uh, For a while there, it sort of stopped talking about it entirely and then it hinted at bringing the C-Class and the E-Class together and then it put a million prototypes on the road and now it's finally out. Um, This CLE is kind of a throwback to the days of the CLK when Mercedes had a dedicated line for its coupe and convertible. Um, And it replaces the E-Class and the C-Class in one go because we know globally people are looking more and more to SUVs and away from coupes and convertibles. And having two separate model lines in much the same space just didn't make sense for Mercedes. This car will be in Australia in the second half of 2024. Um, It's going to launch in Europe in coupe form later this year and then convertible form early next year. Now, it's a little bit longer and wider and has a longer wheelbase than the last C-Class Coupe. It's bigger than a 4 Series or an Audi A5, which is kind of its direct rival. And Merck says, and this is a crucial one I know for you, Will, uh, the boot now holds three golf bags. So there's that. <laughs> um, on the outside, I'm still not quite sold on the styling. It looks kind of a little bit Acura or um, sort of Infinity-ish at the back, mm. but there's no mistaking it for anything but a Merck up front. And under the bonnet at launch, there'll be a range of two litre and then there's one uh, four-cylinder and then there's one inline six engine in the CLE 450. We're expecting it to get plug-in hybrid AMG powertrains down the track as well, but at launch initially, at least in Europe, you can even get yourself a two-litre diesel if you really want. Pricing hasn't been confirmed, and to be honest, I, um, I'm i not really willing to hazard a guess because Mercedes prices have gone up and this is a brand new model line, but if I had to take a punt, I'd say over the $100,000 mark um, in sort of BMW 430i territory. I'm kind of of two minds about the CLE because obviously it makes a lot of sense uh, for Mercedes to be consolidating its uh, lower volume models. We've already seen S-Class Coupe and Convertible go. We've seen SLC go. It makes sense to go back to that old CLK strategy. However, what they've done here um, is they've given it very C-Class looking styling, I have to say. And that's one thing the CLK never did. It was based on a C-Class, but it looked more like an E-Class. So it helped kind of bridge the gap there. You, you Maybe it felt like you're getting a more expensive car than, than what you were really getting. Um, and even with, what, two generations of E-Class coupe uh, ago, uh, I believe that also used C-Class underpinnings, but it looked like an E-Class for all intents and purposes. So it's it's a bit disappointing to see it look very C-Class like. And yes, I do see Acura Integra in the taillights. Now I can't unsee it now that Scott has pointed it out. <laughs> but there was one pleasant surprise when I was reading about the CLE. This is this is a car that has been endlessly spied for so long now. So I'm glad we could just rip the bandit off and it's finally been revealed. 
it is nice to actually see a six-cylinder option because I was of the belief that it would just end up mirroring the C-Class powertrain lineup. And as we know, the C-Class, even in hottest AMG guys, has gone exclusively four cylinders. Um, so it's nice to see a six-cylinder option there, but I just wish it looked a little bit more special. And that's probably a complaint I've had about a lot of um, Mercedes designs of late. They all just kind of look a lot like each other and they all kind of blur together to me. And I'm sure it's going to be a, a, a great car to drive, um, but uh, styling's just really not doing it for me. Well, it looks like uh, buying an EV in Australia is getting cheaper. Yes. Well, this this was a really interesting one um, because uh, for those of uh, you who have been following the electric car price wars of late, uh, MG announced that they were going to be bringing in uh, their most affordable MG4 variant um, for, was it 38990 before on-roads? And then just days later, BYD announced the price of their, the base price of their Dolphin would be 38 890 before on roads. Um, so now GWM with its Aura electric hatchback, which has only just started reaching showrooms, I believe, um, after a, a bit of a wait there, uh, they had announced pricing a few months ago saying that it was going to start at 43,990 before on roads. Well, in July 2023, that just will not do, apparently. Um, GWM has announced that it's slashing the price of its base model. To thirty nine nine ninety before on roads, so that's a four grand price drop for the same vehicle, um, and it's clearly in response to MG four and, and BYD Dolphin pricing. Um, but it makes the GWM Aura, which was sort of in danger of becoming a bit of an also ran just by virtue of having a, a, a noticeably higher uh, base price, uh, and now puts it right in contention with those three. And I'll tell you what, I'd love for us to put together a comparison of those three when we can finally get them all together. Um, but that's not all. GWM has also announced slashing prices of other Aura variants by two grand, um, and it's even adding an Ultra variant for forty-eight nine ninety before on roads, which comes with things like a power tailgate, panoramic sunroof, heated, ventilated, and massaging front seats. Oh uh, yeah, so it's pretty well kitted out. This is really exciting. Um, these cars are still not what I would call cheap overall because you can still get petrol or hybrid cars for between twenty and thirty thousand dollars but all of a sudden they open a new door for new people and the one thing that drives car makers like nothing else is competition ultimately they're in the business of selling cars and if your rival is selling the same car cheaper people are going to buy it especially now you know as people are getting more and more aware of electric cars um, there is going to be more and more competition and that's only going to do good things for Aussie consumers so as some of the more vocal advocates for electric cars in Australia have been saying for a long time, and some of the stuff they say is right, some of it's wrong, they're definitely right on this one. As soon as the snowball starts turning in Australia and, and we see more cars coming here, competition has ramped up, prices have become cheaper, and consumers are the winners. I'm going to be very curious to see what happens with the Japanese and Korean uh, competitors here because these cars significantly undercut something like a Nissan Leaf or a Hyundai Kona. So those brands are going to have to make a decision. Do they try and lower their prices um, to uh, to better rival these vehicles? Now, that seems probably unlikely because supply seems to always be really tight for any company that's not building cars in China when it comes to electric vehicles because we, we're seen as a bit of a low-priority market. The alternative thing they can do is try and position themselves as, as more premium offerings. But I think that then wedges 
somebody like Nissan, for example, um, in, in a very uncomfortable spot because you've got Tesla absolutely dominating the electric vehicle market and they can sell you a Model 3 for a pretty low price for an electric vehicle. Then you've got the Chinese coming in at the very bottom. Someone's going to get squeezed out there. And even as we see electric vehicle demand grow in this country, I think there's just going to be a point there where those more established nameplates are really going to struggle. This just sort of reminded me of the time when, uh, you know, when Kia went up to their, the seven-year warranty and everyone else sort of seemed to try to play catch-up, raise the three-year warranty to five years, and then we've got some, I think, that are always also at seven. But, um, yeah, it's it reminds me of that. It's so quaint uh, when you look back at, like, old reviews from, like, over a decade ago and they're like, yes. oh, this car comes with a generous two-year warranty. <laughs> real come on 100,000 kilometer warranty oh my <laughs> god ah oh, the good old days uh finally scully we're gonna get a hyundai tucson hybrid it's taken quite a while mandy but yeah we're finally getting one um hyundai's offered a version of this car overseas for quite a while and it's high on the list for the australian arm because the rav4 hybrid is so incredibly popular not having a hybrid tucson means they don't have the opportunity to rip all those people stuck on a long waiting list away from toyota now, we don't know exactly when, but in the first half of 2024, the car is going to touch down locally. And price-wise, based on what Hyundai has done with the Kona, we expect it to be a couple of grand more expensive than the base engine and probably in line with the 1.6-litre turbo or the 2-litre turbo diesel engine that's on offer. Hyundai says it's part of a strategy to keep offering some more affordable petrol cars at the bottom end of the range, let people move through hybrids all the way through to full electric, rather than forcing them to pick between cheap petrol and expensive electric and to me, that seems like a pretty sensible strategy. The Tucson Hybrid has 169 kilowatts of power and claim fuel economy is just under six litres per 100 Ks, which I realise is not quite Toyota good, but if you are spending a lot of your time in the city and you are driving a, a midsize SUV, you would be very happy with those numbers. Ultimately, whether or not this car succeeds is going to depend on supply. Hyundai and Kia have tried to get hybrids and plug-in hybrids to Australia for quite a while. Uh, but it's not quite happened yet. We've only seen them be able to get like 10 Sorento plug-in hybrids, for example. So if Hyundai can bring in a meaningful number of these Tucson hybrids, it absolutely has the potential to rock the boat a little bit. But until we can confirm that's the case, I'm not willing to say it's a RAV4 killer just yet. It's uh, obviously a, a very pertinent uh, comparison to draw there between the Tucson Hybrid and the RAV4 Hybrid. And Scott, I have, I have a question for you because that's something we've seen with, with Hyundai and Kia's hybrids is they're not necessarily as fuel efficient as Toyota's. But do you think that that is worth it to have the driving experience that they have? Do you prefer the driving experience you get with a Hyundai or Kia Hybrid over a Toyota? I find Hyundai and Kia hybrids a little bit awkward, actually, and that may be because we've spent so much time in Toyotas, um, or it may be because the Toyota hybrid, you get electric motor, and then the engine kicks in, and it just smoothly sort of blends through the CVT, whereas the Hyundai stuff, it drives through the gearbox. So in with your electric motor going, you'll hear it sort of shuffle from first to second to third. And I find that quite awkward. When the petrol engine does kick in, it then maybe needs to kick down or go up a gear or whatever it is. It just never feels as linear as a Toyota one. And I suppose the trade-off for that is when both power sources are going and you put your foot down in the Hyundai, it kind of feels more natural. It revs out like a petrol engine normally does. It doesn't do that CVT thing the Toyotas do. But in day-to-day driving, I definitely, based on my previous experience, prefer a Toyota setup. Are we getting the big daddy Tucson or are we getting the shorter European body? Have they confirmed? 
it will be a continuation of the current range. So it will be the Big Daddy Tucson. In Europe, they do sell a shorter wheelbase version, but that's not for Australia. Can we just have a variant called the Big Daddy? That'd be great. Mahindra actually is one step ahead of you there. It um, it had an incredible ad campaign in uh, in India for the new uh, Scorpio, and they put this incredible like Mission Impossible sequence together where they were talking about needing a bigger daddy, and daddy is already big, but we can make him bigger. And then they finally revealed the new Scorpio, which is the big daddy. It's one of the most incredible ads you'll ever see. <laughs> We have been joking about it in the office ever since, and that that was months ago now. Um, but I happened to be flicking through the Mahindra Scorpio brochure, the Indian market brochure recently, and wow, they went really heavy on the daddy references there too. Oh, daddy is so strong. Daddy can conquer all terrain. Like, it's it's just oh, nuts. No. And, and, and I really need to find, if I find it, I will put it in the in the podcast link. There was that 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 ad campaign that you were talking about. They did like a full length one. It was, re- it was shot really cinematically, and I was trying to show somebody it the other day and I could not find it for the life of me. And it's hilarious and required viewing for anybody who's listening to the podcast. Okay. I'm definitely going to do some hunting for that one. Um, and lastly, Will, the car world is mourning a, a very, I suppose you could call it iconic car designer. Yeah. So in really sad news, Peter Horbury, the English automotive designer, passed away at the age of 73. Um it, uh, he was actually visiting colleagues in China um, as part of his work uh, when he passed away. Uh, now, he uh, was still responsible for Lotus design. Um, so it sounds like he was working kind of right up until the end. Um, but for those of you who are not familiar with Peter Horbury, you'll definitely be familiar with his work. Um, so before he joined Lotus, and well, Geely, who owns Lotus, um, he's perhaps best known for uh, leading design at Volvo. Um So he actually uh, joined Volvo back in 1979. Uh, One of the first projects he worked on was the Volvo 480 hatchback. We didn't get that here, but it was a very radical departure from pretty much anything Volvo had done previously. Um, Then the concept that that perhaps uh, shaped Volvo design most significantly in the modern era was the 1992 ECC concept. And if you don't remember that, I mean, how many concept cars get revealed every year? Uh, I don't blame you. But if you go back and look at photos of it, you can very clearly see uh, just how much it inspired the design of the first generation S80, uh, the first generation S60. It brought in these key design elements that we that we saw as, as Volvo moved away from that boxy uh, design language with the, the 740, 760, et cetera, and the 850 to this different, smoother design language with very prominent shoulders and uh, large lighting elements and and, and things like that. Uh, So he really transformed Volvo design. Um, Now, after Volvo, um, he was... While Volvo was actually still owned by Ford, uh, he got promoted to Ford Head of Design for North America. Uh, So he was responsible for uh, shaking up uh, the Ford brand's design language as well. So a lot of vehicles that we didn't see here, uh, but bringing in lots of prominent chrome elements. So uh, midlife updates for the the first generation Fusion and and, um, other vehicles like that. Um, Then he moved back to Volvo. And then obviously with with Volvo being acquired by Geely, uh, his... um, purview included brands like uh, Lotus, which I mentioned before, also Lincoln Co, Smart and Zeker. So over the past few years, uh, he's been uh, basically in in charge of Lotus design. Uh, So 
under under Peter Horbury, you saw vehicles like the Electre, um, which is Lotus's first SUV and first yeah first electric SUV, first SUV period. Uh, so we're still probably going to see a few uh, vehicles um, that, that are going to come out that are, that are going to show the uh, the influence of, of Peter Horbury on them. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really sad. He's one of those really well. He's one of those really well known designers in the industry. Um, it's certainly sad and, and unexpected news. Volvo, to me, in 2023 is a style leader, and that only happens if way back down the line someone actually takes the effort and the time to change its direction. Um, As much as I love the old-fashioned boxy upright Volvo, I think there's something so beautiful about their current cars and the fact that they're still unashamedly boxy and upright and practical, but they also have these smooth edges and interesting details that make them more than just a box. Um, That's is present in so many of Peter Horbury's designs. I mean, you mentioned, Will, the S60, but also the the Volvo XC90, the first-gen car, has aged better than pretty much any other large SUV from that era. An early 2000s Merc ML looks ancient. The BMW X5 looks like a 5 Series Touring. Um, That XC90 was on sale for close to 15 years, maybe not quite, and throughout its life, it had some minor tweaks, but it aged incredibly well and really set the foundation for what the brand is today. So as we look at Volvo now as a real luxury challenger, it's it's sort of built on the foundations that Horbury was a real part of creating. And you've got to really hand it to those kind of transformative uh, designers who uh, you saw this with Volvo in, in the 70s into the 80s into the 90s. It seemed like they were just retreading the same design language and eventually you kind of reach a dead end. We saw that happen with Jaguar as well and then Ian Callum um, kind of took charge there and completely changed the, the design language of Jaguar vehicles. Peter Horbury, under him, Volvo's design language completely changed. And those tend to be the designers that you remember um, because you have to think a lot of car companies will, will cycle through heads of design and you're not going to be able to remember everybody's names, but somebody like a Peter Horbury, you're going to remember just because of the sheer impact that he had on that company and its fortunes, really. Rest in peace to Peter Horbury. Okay, time to talk about last month's new car sales figures, which are called VFAX. It looks like another stellar month, Scully. Yeah, Mandy, it was another big month of new car sales. Uh, Actually, it's the best result since 2018 when 130,300 cars are sold. So June is traditionally a massive new car sales month as we come into the end of financial year and this year was no different. And if the peak body, the FCAI, is actually to be believed, it could have been an all-time record if supply was matching demand. Uh, as we know, there are still long delays on some new cars and shipping holdups and all sorts of things stopping people getting their new cars. Uh, and that has held back deliveries, which are what VFACT reports over the last 12, 18, even 24 months. In terms of the headlines, the Toyota Hilux was once again the best-selling car in the country, but it was followed by a new one, the uh, Tesla Model Y, which outsold the Ford Ranger to take second spot on the podium. Tesla is now comfortably in the top 10 best-selling car brands to date in 2023, and it's showing no signs of slowing down. On the brand front, Toyota was uh, down 7.1%, but still dominated the market with double the sales of second place, Mazda, and Hyundai came in third ahead of Ford, Kia, and Tesla. Um, Will, from this month, what was the number that most struck you? 
I think it's that Model Y number. <laughs> that just really surprised me because we've seen the Model 3 uh, soar up the sales charts. We've seen the Model Y do really well. But the fact that it was actually able to knock over the Ford Ranger in that month um, is absolutely astonishing to me. But it is worth pointing out that if you do look year to date, Model Y is not quite up there. Um, so year to date, um, Hilux is sitting at 28,000, Ranger 26 or so thousand, and the Tesla Model Y is all the way down in third place <laughs> with 14,000 sales. It's part of a trend we're seeing more broadly, and electric car sales are jumping really quickly. Um, obviously, previously, Tesla didn't actually report its numbers, which obviously helps when you look at the, the comparison. But we've also seen BYD grow really rapidly. Year to date, it's sold close to 10,000 cars. Um, and we're seeing the growth of electric car sales from brands like MG and soon to be GWM. So it's something we expect to be talking about a lot more going forward. In terms of the biggest segments in the country, SUVs accounted for more than half of the market. Light commercials were 23% and passenger cars were 16%. And the best-selling segments in the country were medium SUV, 4x4 ute, and then small SUV. None of that is really a surprise. Um, in terms of the smaller brands making an impact, uh, Ram was up 85%, Sangyong was up 144%, and Land Rover was up 85%. A lot of these brands are doing this on the back of supply. We know there's been a lot of pent-up demand for them and lots of forward orders, and a boat has finally arrived with a chunk of those cars. We've also seen significant growth from smaller brands. Uh, Cupra, for example, is on track to to sell maybe more cars than we expected this year, um, and it's rolling out the Bourne electric car now. And we've seen brands such as Alfa Romeo, which has just rolled out its new Tonale small SUV, uh, record growth relative to last year. How is Cherry going? Uh, because they've only entered the market quite recently, but I had a look at sales figures before. It seems like uh, they're, they're climbing quite rapidly too. Yeah, Cherry sold just over 600 cars in Australia last month, which puts it barely 50 behind Jeep and actually puts it ahead of Mini uh, for June at least. It only has the Emota 5 in Australia at the moment, but we are expecting more SUVs, the Tigo Pro range to touch down soon, um, and that's only going to drive it up as well. And it's sort of the continuation of a trend we're seeing with MG and GWM. Even though we've found that the cars aren't quite as good as the established players, because they're cheaper and because they look really slick and they're coming in at a, a price people want, they are selling really strongly. Are there any brands that uh, perhaps didn't do too well during the month or are perhaps not doing too well this year period? I mean, the big one is Toyota. Uh, Toyota was down 7.1% over June 2022 and its market share has dropped significantly. It was down to 17% as opposed to 23% in June 2022. We know that this is partly on the back of supply. Um, the brand has been struggling to get the strong selling RAV4 hybrid, Camry hybrid, among other cars to the country, and, and that has eaten into it. But it's going to be really interesting to see if that market share actually comes back or whether it's been eaten up by the brands who are stealing sales from it. Uh, in terms of other brands that were down significantly last month, Hyundai dipped very slightly, Kia dropped to close to 10%, um, and Mitsubishi was down close to 10%. In a lot of cases, this can be put down to supply, but we also know Mitsubishi is getting ready to roll out a new Triton in Australia, which is obviously means the old ones in run out, and that's also going to eat into sales. For a full breakdown of VFAX, head to carexpert.com.au and leave your questions in the comments at the bottom of the story, and our team will get back to you. 
Scully, you recently jumped in the seat of the uh, Hyundai Kona. This was the launch review up in uh, New South Wales. How did you find it? Yeah, Mandy, the new Kona is a very different car to the one that came before it. Before it. The original Kona was a bit of a trailblazer in Australia. It was one of the first cars to sell really strongly in that segment and had a really funky design, a really cool ad campaign around it with the dancing parking uh, meters and the dancing washing sort of spinners from the car wash. Um, Hyundai's kind of doubled down on that for the second generation. It still looks quite out there. You can still get some bright colors, but it is a more grown up and it's a bigger and higher tech car than before. So that's probably one complaint that I had about the last Kona, Scott, is that if you're looking at rear seat space, if you're looking at boot space, it was actually less practical than an i30 hatchback. And people often think, well, I I have kids, you know, I want more space, I should get an SUV. But in the case of the Kona, it was actually not any more practical. It was actually less practical. So tell me now, is it bigger? Is it more comfortable in the back than an i30 um, hatchback? How does it compare with its rivals? It's taken a massive step forward, and that is one of the key things about this car. It's bigger in every dimension than the old one. Boot space is up from 375 to 405 litres, but the space itself is so much wider and more usable than before. It feels like it's much bigger. And, yeah, the back seats, it starts when you open the doors. That old Kona had a really tight door that you had to sort of squeeze in through. And if you were loading kids or bags or if you were an adult trying to get in, it was a real pain in the ass. The new one has big doors that open nice and wide, and when you're back there, it's got tall windows, it's got plenty of headroom, and it's got enough legroom that as an adult, you can sit behind another adult on a longer drive and not feel like you want to cut your legs off, which is really positive. Hyundai's also put things like air vents in the back, it's got USB ports in the back, and there's a fold-down central armrest. Some real thought has gone into making this a car that is usable as a family car, and Rather than feeling like a big version of a small SUV, it almost feels like a slightly shrunken Tucson inside, which is the approach that Kia's also taken with the Seltos and one that's really won favor with lots of buyers. So it's a huge tick on the practicality front relative to the old one. I'm looking forward to getting it side by side with the Seltos to see which is actually the better family car because both of them really punch above their weight. But certainly based on first impressions, it's up there with the best in class. So while we're talking about the interior of the Kona, how is it in terms of material quality and and presentation? Because I think probably if we're looking at the small SUV segment, maybe the Mazda CX-30 might have the most premium feeling interior. Does the Kona come close to this? Is it an improvement over the last one? Uh, No and yes. Um, It doesn't feel as premium as a CX-30 inside, but it feels very high tech and very modern and it's definitely a big step on from the last car. Even the base model gets a massive 12.3-inch central infotainment screen and higher-end cars get the same size screen in front of the driver as well. So it's got the tech thing covered really nicely. And when you sit up front, even the base car with the T-bar shifter uh, on the central tunnel feels wide open and very modern and and sort of spacious. Um, The driving position is awesome for tall drivers. I got very comfortable very quickly, which is not something I can say about the last one. And As you sort of look out over the wide bonnet, it definitely feels like a bigger car. I think Hyundai also deserves credit for, even on the base model, sticking with buttons. So that big screen eats up some of the functions, but you get proper buttons for your climate control. You get shortcut buttons to jump around the infotainment system. And it means that even though it is more modern and higher tech, it still feels very natural to use if you're hopping out of an older car, which is something you can't say about some of its rivals. In terms of the space there, well, I mean, the entry-level car gets a pretty big open center console and then higher-end cars have the shifter move to the steering column and it means you can get 
a couple of big drinks, you can get a handbag or something into the central tunnel and you're not going to have to worry about space at all, which which I think is a really good thing. And it's something Hyundai's borrowed from its electric cars. Um, in terms of quality, I'm less sure. So the base model definitely looks more expensive than before and some of the stuff you touch is nice, but there's still lots of really hard, scratchy plastics around. And I do think that's a little bit disappointing given it's gone from being a $27,000 car to being a $32,000 car at the entry level. When you jump into the end line, it feels more expensive. You get these really lovely leather and genuine Alcantara seats and lots of red stitching. But if you do scratch things, there's still lots of hard bits and pieces around. Hyundai's not the only brand to do that in its small SUV, but if we're talking premium in the context of a CX-30, the Kona can't quite match it. So you mentioned pricing there. Uh, my understanding is the lineup of the Kona's changed a little bit in how it's structured. So can you walk us through what the Kona lineup looks like for the new generation? Yeah, so to start with in Australia, you're able to get a 2-litre and a 1.6-litre turbo petrol. We are also going to get a hybrid option towards the end of the year, and then the full electric is coming as well. But to start with, you can get the petrol 2-litre, and then the hybrid is $4,000 more expensive. You can also get an N-line version of the base car with the 1.6-litre turbo engine if you want, and that's also the same price as the hybrid, the 1.6 turbo N-line. So prices range from $32,000 up to about $46,000 before on-road costs. Um, if you want the 1.6-litre turbo engine, you will need to spend a couple of grand on top of the base car to get the N-line package, but it does make for quite a dramatic-looking SUV, and the interior upgrades, I think, are worth the money. So one of the biggest complaints I had with the old Kona was I thought the 1.6 litre turbo powertrain was just not worth the premium at all. Um, ever since uh, the two litre got the um, the IVT transmission, I thought it was hugely improved, and I just I questioned why you'd want to step up to the 1.6. Has that been improved? It has, and the big change is Hyundai has killed the dual clutch transmission that was cooked up to the old 1.6, and it's replaced it with an eight speed automatic. You can hear background clapping sound effects there. Um, that dual clutch was not a good dual clutch transmission. It did the job kind of fine, but it was awkward off the mark. It got caught between first and second gear quite often. And on the move, it definitely shifted reasonably quickly, but it wasn't the sort of snappy lightning you get from a Volkswagen DSG. As far as I can see, it offered no huge benefit over a torque converter. Swapping to the torque converter in the new one means the car feels way more natural at low speeds, and it doesn't feel any slower to shift when you're going faster either. I think the other thing worth noting is that this bigger car kind of needs more grunt to get it going. And the two litre, although it is adequate at low speeds or in the city, it never really feels like it's got a heap of grunt going on and you've got to work it very hard to get moving quickly. So I suppose the flip side of the, uh, or the other side of that is, yes, the two litre does enough, but the 1.6 now feels more necessary or more useful than ever because the Kona is a bigger and a heavier car. So it's bigger, it's heavier. Uh, how does it handle yeah, the handling is an interesting one. Um, Hyundai has always prided itself on making the Kona quite a fun car to drive. And the base model, we actually pulled out of Hyundai's head office and onto one of the worst surfaced roads in Sydney. And it kind of slapped really hard into some bumps. And I thought, oh, this is a real worry. But it actually is quite comfortable at low speeds. Some sharper bumps do really thump into the car. And that was noticeable to us. It's going to be interesting to spend a week behind the wheel and see if that's the case on a longer drive on our normal roads. But that did stand out to me in the city that occasionally if you hit something quite sharp, you do really know it in the cabin. But at higher speeds, that base model is really, really composed and really comfortable. 
it floats really nicely over rubbish Melbourne or, you know, Victorian country highways, um, the sort of thing that we get all around the country, actually. I'm not sure why I went to Victorian there. Um, and it handles quite nicely. It feels pretty keen to turn. It doesn't feel like it wants to push understeer off the road. And I'm sure if you really wrung its neck and threw it around, you could get it moving about a bit. The 1.6 feels a little bit sportier. There's a bit more weight to the steering. It feels a bit firmer on the road, but fundamentally it has the same good sort of genes as the other Kona. Um, it's also nicely settled. Um, and yeah, it's not quite a full-on N experience, but if you do want to feel like you're having a bit more fun in your car without spending too much money, it's quite a nice warm SUV. Regardless of which one you go for, there is some fun to be had. And I am really impressed with how that base Kona handled country highways. I am just curious to drive the base car on roads I'm familiar with to see if the ride was just sharp on those Sydney roads we had because they were so bad or if it is a problem more broadly. So you mentioned that none of the Konas give you the full N experience. Can we expect the full N experience to come with this generation of Kona? It's a good question and it's one we don't actually have an answer for yet. Hyundai has been a little bit evasive on that. Um, We know the Kona N was the least popular N model in Australia Um, and also the other N cars we've seen have been front-wheel drive. It actually wouldn't surprise me if we don't see a full-on Kona N in this generation, but that's also still to be seen. The, The latest Kona N only came after a facelift to the car, so later in its life it is possible that the Kona N will appear but certainly at launch it won't be there and if it is coming it could be quite a ways away so scott what car expert rating did you give the new hyundai kona look at launch it's an 8.1 out of 10 because there's a lot more we want to know about how each individual model stacks up but based on our first impression it's a really solid compact suv and one that should be on your shopping list and we're looking forward to putting it head to head with the best in the business you can read the full hyundai kona launch review on carexpert.com.au Guys, it, it seems like Car Expert is absolutely killing it in just about every media format, especially videos. How have we been going with this, Scully? It feels like we're just everywhere at the moment. Yeah, so we do have something to, to crow about here, if we can just boast for a moment here. Um, so with 36,765,589 views across YouTube, TV, and video on-demand platforms between July 1 of last year and June 30 of this year, we actually had more than twice as many, so 2.2 times as many views as our nearest competitor. So obviously... Probably everybody listening knows about our enormously you know, popular YouTube channel, um, which Paul is is the face of. Um, but what you might not know um, is that we've also been uh, uh, on television, or rather Paul has been on television uh, with slots in Better Homes and Gardens. Um, so we've been uh, producing a series of automotive segments um, for that show, which airs on Friday on on Fridays on Channel 7. Um so we're, 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 we're kind of everywhere. <laughs> we are ubiquitous. Um, the, uh, our car expert YouTube channel, uh, which is kind of where it all started, um, has averaged more than 3 million monthly views so far in 2023. Um, our, channel also has more subscribers than any competitor um, and we also received 2.7 times more total YouTube video views than our nearest rival between January and June 2023. Uh, so as Paul said, you know, for 12 months out of 12, we've sat atop the charts and where others have stagnated, uh, we've continued to grow at a fast rate. Uh, sorry, I should have started that with, g'day, I'm Paul uh, for 12 months out of 12, etc, etc. Uh, but yes, it's it's lovely and you know we couldn't do it without you, the viewer, the listener, the, the 
content absorber um, and our loyal audience um, who are tuning in to watch us. And it's, it's wonderful. So one of the things that stands out to me about these numbers, and obviously we are biased because we work for Car Expert, but the um, the reach on television that Expert has is quite significant. So across regional and metro TV, uh, there's more than a million viewers reached in the stuff we've done previously with Channel 7. And the plan is to grow that significantly through the second half of the year as part of a partnership with Better Homes and Gardens. So if you are tuning in to Better Homes on a Friday night to get tips on how to overhaul your backyard or how to make your house look prettier, you also might see Paul's face there talking about the best utes for the job, for example. Um, the other thing that kind of terrifies me, Will, is Car Expert gets more than 330,000 hours of viewing every month on YouTube. That is a lot of time people are spending watching our ute tests, but also watching Paul's face. I guess it helps that our videos are quite long. <laughs> but uh, look, I guess what you could say as well um, is that for us, things are getting so much better all the time. They're getting better. <laughs> They're getting better all the time. Better, better. I can't remember the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> You'll notice the Help Me Car Expert sting in our most recent videos. That is something that's rolling out across the board and is a new feature for Car Expert. You'll also notice a new podcast popping up on our YouTube channel soon. So keep an eye out for that. We will have more information about that in a separate podcast episode. But on top of the broadcast TV stuff, the YouTube channel will have some more new ideas and products coming soon. I think now is also a good time to give Sean and Igor, our video guys, a big shout out. Um, we have quite a small video team. It's just two people on top of Paul, the presenter, who shoot and edit everything. Um, and that is a really significant job that probably goes a little bit unnoticed because taking really high quality footage and then making it look good in a really quick turnaround is a hard thing to do. So guys, if they are, if you are listening, um, well done. And if you're not listening, make sure that, uh, if you are a YouTube viewer, you reach out in the comments and let them know how good of a job they're doing. That wraps up this week's podcast. Where's the team off to next week, Scully? It is a very busy week, Mandy. We have got people everywhere. I'm off to Sydney and then off to Adelaide driving the Volkswagen Golf R 20 years edition and Ooh. then a range of BMW M cars that we were meant to drive a couple of months ago and couldn't get off the boat. Um, James is off to New South Wales to drive the new Mazda CX-60. Uh, up in Sydney, we've also got Matt Campbell driving the new Honda ZRV, and then Will is off to Sydney to drive the Peugeot e-partner. So we're scattered all over the country this week. And what cars have we got coming up in the garage? So because we're spread so thin, uh, we don't have quite as many cars as we do this week. So uh, next week, we're going to have the Volkswagen Amarok Life TDI 500, Toyota GR Supra GTS with the manual. Very nice. Um, and also Toyota GR86 10th anniversary with the manual. Uh, and up in Sydney, we're also uh, getting behind the wheel of the Lexus RX350H. All right. Scott Colley and William Stopford. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy.